We would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Preborn. When a mother meets her baby on an ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection. And the majority of the time, she will choose life. But she can't do it without our help. Preborn needs us, the pro-life community, to come alongside her. One ultrasound is just $28. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby or visit preborn.com. Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. The U.S. Constitution obligates our government to preserve and protect the rights that our founders recognize come from God, our creator, not our government. I believe that scripture in the Bible is very clear that God is the one that raised up each of you and God has allowed us to be brought here to this specific moment in time. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Well, good morning. Good morning and happy Tuesday. It is great to be back with you here on Jenna Ellis in the morning on AFR. And I so appreciate when uh, people like Alex McFarland and uh, Abe Hamilton and others can fill in um, occasionally when, you know, we have to do other uh, other things besides radio, which included for me this weekend having a family visit. And it was a really great long weekend uh, for me to be able to um, just spend some time uh, with family. And uh, my parents came in and um, and they flew out actually uh, yesterday right before uh, out of out of Orlando, um, the Orlando airport. And um, they they flew out just a couple of hours before um, Terminal B, there was a a headline that uh, there was a law enforcement response and some were suggesting online, I have not confirmed this, but that there was a bomb threat uh, at the the Orlando airport yesterday. So still have not uh, confirmed that, but um, that was all on social media yesterday. So thankfully, everything was fine in terms of all of uh, my family leaving, and we got to spend uh, some good time together in Florida. And then, of course, uh, we're in Orlando because, yes, we still go to Disney World. And that's a very controversial topic, but um, for us, it's all about family, and it's all about uh, going and um, you know, spending time together in uh, in a place that we've been going to for 20 years. And then prior to that, uh, my my mom uh, grew up in California near Disneyland. And one of the interesting things that we were observing um, when we were there on the weekend was that uh, we didn't see anything that was, you know, the the transgender costumed people, the um, you know, the, the gay pride, whatever. I mean, they had a little bit of merch, but, you know, it's kind of off in a corner. And um, it was all families that were, you know, regular heterosexual families with kids. And, um, you know, it was a very family-friendly place. And what's so sad for the Walt Disney Company um, is, of course, I mean, that that's the legacy of Walt Disney. He wanted a great place that people could come for their families and spend time. And um, now because of their former CEO that was only there for a couple of years, uh, Bob Chapek, um, who, you know, made the ridiculous decision to oppose the Florida Parental Rights and Education Bill um, and cater to a, you know, less than 1% of the population and and try to push that as if it's somehow, you know, 30 or 40% of the population or, uh, and even if it were, it would still be wrong. I mean, it doesn't, morality doesn't change. Truth doesn't change regardless of whether, you know, it's 1% or 100% of people believe in something that's false. It's still false. Um, but, but really, it's a segment of society that the left 
wants us to believe is is kind of this great swath of voters. And even even the Republican Party uh, would like us to believe that and has this a uh, view of kind of a big tent conservatism and saying, oh, we can't uh, have any sort of moral debates and we can't uh, target people's lifestyles and say that that's wrong. And and of course we can. And so, you know, so what is the what does the Republican Party stand for if it's not standing on the truth of conservatism, which is founded and premised on the biblical worldview and dividing truth from error? And um, this is why that we need to be so circumspect as when we walk as um, as believers and when we um, make decisions. And, and I realize that, you know, some of you listening are thinking, well, you know, I after all of this, I could never go to Disney World with my family. And that's OK. Um, you know, that that's absolutely I would say it falls under um, the the conscience verses in scripture that if if you feel that you're participating in in something that overall is as a company um, you can't you can't go and participate then don't and and that's okay um, you know my perspective on it as I've I've said you know many times over the last few years is that I will use um, my my money affirmatively that if enough people, which I think they have, enough people have said, we're only interested in the family-friendly things and look at how many of the uh, the woke movies are bombing at the box office, that ultimately it becomes about the bottom line and you're seeing more family-friendly content, more um, pro-America content, and um, and certainly at the parks. And that's actually a good thing. And, and we have to live in society, as uh, the Apostle Paul said, we have to be in the world, just not of the world. And um, and so, you know, this it becomes a difficult thing to navigate, but we absolutely have to always remember that it's not about party, it's not about partisanship, it's not about what we would prefer to do, it's not about, you know, our um, likes and desires, it's ultimately, do we conform to the image of Christ, and do we conform our thoughts to truth and to the knowledge um, of the truth, the person of truth, which is God. And um, so often, I think in in the political sphere today, especially, it becomes so easy to be siloed in this kind of red versus blue mentality that in order to win some fights for conservatism, then we feel we have to support basically everything that the Republican Party stands for and not call them out uh, when it's actually wrong or it is a policy position that's antithetical to uh, to truth and the truth of reality. And I was talking about this in the context of uh, RFK Jr.'s post that, that I just thought was genuinely really terrible um, when he was commenting on the Alabama Supreme Court opinion, and when he was uh, when when he had tweeted on that, it was uh, it, it was it was really terrible. And let me um, let me pull this up here um, if I can find it. It's uh, from RFK, and it was it was just oh yeah, here we go. Um, sorry, my spreadsheet is a little bit out of tune this morning. But this is what he tweeted on February 25th. He said, Republicans like uh, Tommy Tuberville should stop imposing their abortion absolutism on medical issues like IVF. Countless women have IVF to thank for their babies. Every child is a blessing. I wholeheartedly reject the Alabama ruling on this issue. Most Republicans I speak to are sick of this political theater. Let's get back to working for the needs of the American people. 
Um, so Katie Faust, who is, is going to be joining us in the next segment, is going to comment more on, on this and um, the rights of the child and how we are so focused as a society on what we want to do that we forget that children also have rights because they are human beings made in the image of God, have inherent dignity and worth. Um, just because you are two or you're 20 or you're 200, it, it doesn't matter. You are, um, you are still a human being. And there's not... Um, a, a difference in terms of the the rights that children have versus adults. Now, are there some um, civil abilities that are are really privileges in society that children can't do until they become of age, like engage in a contract or you know some of those things? Well, yes, but that's something that is a civil society. Uh, mandate that protects the innocence of children. It's not about treating them as lesser as as human beings. And so while RFK Jr. is correct that every child is a blessing, he's calling uh, out Republicans, really, but he's, he's actually affirming it, but I, I actually think he's calling it out to say, most Republicans I speak to are sick of this political theater. At what point in time did it become political theater to suggest that the pro-life issue isn't one of the most basic and fundamental. And and it's so sad that that is probably correct that most Republicans he speaks to say they're sick of the political theater and they want to just kind of put abortion as a topic aside. They want to put the gay marriage topic aside. They want to put the transgender agenda aside. They want to put all of these uh, sort of divisive policies um, aside because, well, we need to win and we need to all, you know, come together and have a wide tent. Well, what are we coming together for? And are our wins really going to matter if we see that we end up with such a weak majority that we're not really doing the business of legitimate governance and governing. And and so this is where, you know, it, it becomes incumbent upon the Christians and the conservatives to have a much deeper biblical worldview analysis. And Alex McFarland and I talked about this uh, last Friday as well when he was, he was at NRB and um, talking about being there and Christians engaging in the culture. But this is why it becomes so important for us to speak out. And I'm so grateful to be on this network where we can still speak out. It is not about just red versus blue. It's not just about, you know, my opinions and me saying, you know, here's what I think. And therefore that's, that's correct. We, we almost have this um, kind of myopic view that whatever opinions we individually hold to, well, that's 100% of the truth. Um, that That's not accurate. Um, I am not God. I am not perfect. I am not um, the sum of, of all truth. And my opinions should be conformed to the image of Christ, certainly policy positions. And some things that are opinions can have distinctions and differences that we can debate, and we can debate what is best on the scale of good to say, you know, what type of, of, of system of government, for example, like our founders debated, um, should be the best to implement a legitimate society. And and they debated that. And there's not one system of governance. Um, for example, the Bible didn't mandate that America has to be a constitutional republic. Uh, we see a lot of different types of governments um, throughout the different 
throughout world history and the different uh, world powers that were there. And even in Old Testament Israel, um, the, the civil government that was a king when uh, the, the people cried out for a king and, and God said, no, it should be judges. But he, he gave them what they asked for, even though it ended up being a very bad thing in the Old Testament. Um, so our founders learned from that. They looked at that. But we have this kind of mindset, I think, that we're forgetting the point of government. We're forgetting the point of how Christians should be conservative in our society and in our in our government because we've become so accustomed and I think so oftentimes lazily brainwashed into thinking that we are just siloed into this two-party system that we find ourselves. And so we need to have a holistic perspective. And part of this is um, is what I'm now doing on the Salem News Channel. So uh, yesterday, uh, last night at 9 p.m. Eastern, um, so 8 p.m. Central for those of you in Central, uh, we launched a television show that's on the Salem News Channel. Uh, that's where my podcast has been for several years. And it's called Jenna Ellis Tonight. And I did um, kind of a, a rant at the very end describing this and saying, you know, this isn't just going to be a mouthpiece for the Republican Party, um, even though Salem, of course, isn't like AFR that, you know, we're a nonprofit here at AFR. So we don't, um, it, the, the organization doesn't endorse. If I endorse any candidates, it's in my personal capacity. You know, all of my opinions are in my personal capacity as a nonprofit. But, um, but Salem isn't like that. Um, however, you know, still, Um, I'm not just going to be a a mouthpiece for the Republican Party, nor are they asking me to. Uh, But at the end of the show last night, and you can still find this on uh, uh, snc.tv or you can go to salemnewschannel.com. It's now becoming my podcast at thejennaellisshow.com. The last segment, I was talking about this saying that we can still be consistent conservatives because we have to always evaluate politics and policy from the perspective of a truthful worldview, which truth, of course, is derived from God himself and his specific revelation in the Bible, the general revelation of the reality to which he has presented us. And if we start there and we build up our view of truth in community, our definition of politics and political society and legitimate government, none of that relates to red versus blue. None of that relates to being uh, loyal to just one particular politician or candidate um, over and above policy choices that you may disagree with. I've never uh, met a candidate, even when I worked for former President Trump, for example, that I agreed with 100% of policy decisions. That's okay. I can still support a candidate um, without agreeing 100% because we're flawed individuals. Um, But we need to recognize that loyalty is to God first, to truth first, and that our policy outflows from that. It's not to party. It's not to partisanship. And while we may choose to be be part of uh, parties and uh, and support politicians because we know that it's always a lesser of the many evils, right? And it's always using our vote in the best possible way. We still can call out error where it is. And so that's what we're going to be doing on the Salem News Channel. And um, for all of you who have listened to my podcast on the Salem side, you can watch that at 9 p.m. Eastern at SalemNewsChannel.com. And I still get to be with you each and every morning here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. So I'll be right back.
If you're like most of us, you're paying way too much for healthcare. That's why I want to tell you about a ministry that has been meeting the healthcare needs of hundreds of thousands of Christians, and that's Christian Healthcare Ministries, chministries.org. Christian Healthcare Ministries is cost-sharing made easy. For over 40 years, this unique model has allowed believers to choose their own doctors without worrying about networks or waiting periods, since they are not insurance, but a faith-based alternative to insurance. Members not only get advanced Advantages from the affordability, flexibility, and reliability of CHM, but they also receive access to 24-7 telehealth services at no additional cost. It's no surprise that doctors across the country appreciate working with CHM, and so will you. It all starts with a visit to chministries.org slash AFR. That's chministries.org slash AFR. Christian Healthcare Ministries is the longest serving health share ministry serving all 50 states. Share the good news with a friend too. chministries.com slash AFR. Make the switch today with any time enrollment. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And we're talking about truth in community and having the perspective that is not siloed in partisan politics and just affirming whatever our particular uh, party or politician uh, is is supporting, but always conforming to the truth of reality and ultimately to the truth of the biblical worldview. And it's been really fascinating to me to see uh, how a lot of um, Republicans in particular are kind of backing off of abortion and uh, backing off of issues of, of rights uh, to the child and uh, rights of the children and and all of this outflowing the Alabama Supreme Court ruling that dealt with um, IVF fertilized embryos, which are children. They may be at their very, very uh, smallest stage, but it, it doesn't matter where a child is located um, how big they are, what their uh, mental capacity is, whether they're perfect, whether they're deficient. It, it, it just doesn't matter. They are all still human beings made in the image of God, have inherent dignity and worth. So uh, Katie Faust, who is the founder of Them Before Us, um, speaks so eloquently about rights of children. And, um, and Katie, I think that what's missing in a lot of the discussion over the Alabama Supreme Court ruling and and IVF is um, how big pharma is using IVF as a tool, not just to help uh, couples who are going through infertility and um, and and in some of the positive ways that that we can use and affirm the use of IVF, but they're actually using this to commoditize children, and, and it's really really sad and tragic. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, what we do at Them Before Us is we try to flip the script. We, we try to retrain people to look at issues from the child's perspective. And that's actually what needs to happen in this case as well. There is so much focus on what adults want and often very legitimate pain and struggles that adults are experiencing through infertility or a same-sex attracted couple that would like to have children but whose bodies simply will never be able to accommodate. There's so much focus on their longing, their loss, their pain, their stories. And what we do at them before us and we say, no, this is ultimately about the child. And so that's how we need to be thinking about this Alabama Supreme Court decision. That's how we need to be thinking about IVF and reproductive technologies in general. This is about the child. This is about protecting their right to life, which 
big fertility and IVF violates in 93% of cases. This is about their right to be known and loved by both their mother and father who grant them their identity and offer the perfect gender balance in the home. This is about their right to be born free and not bought and sold and commodified through a marketplace. So that's that's how we need to be thinking about this. This is not a matter of, oh, what do adults want? This is ultimately a question of child protection. Yeah, and I think that's so spot on to say this isn't about what adults want. Um, I was watching uh, the television show uh, Grey's Anatomy, which, you know, I, I watch sometimes some of the more popular entertainment, if I can stomach it, just to see what the left is trying to weave into their worldview and entertainment, and specifically Grey's Anatomy, especially because since the Dobbs um, opinion and Roe versus Wade was overturned, they have put such an emphasis on... Uh, trying to create this perception of abortion as um, as completely healthcare for women, you know, all of these things that are the leftist uh, tactics. And it was fascinating to me, Katie. Um, I was watching an episode last night that um, from this last season, and a a woman and her friend came in, and the friend was um, was uh, was eight months pregnant, and then she was only six weeks pregnant. And she said, um, you know, I just can't be a mother right now. I can't um, deal with this. I'm still focused on um, trauma from my childhood. I I just want to do what's best for me. And I went through and she went through this whole justification for why she was having an abortion. And I sat there and counted and it was like 17 times she referred to I and not one time in that entire segment did anyone say, well, what about what about your unborn baby? Yeah, that's right. And that's how all of these conversations go. They are so motivated by adult self-interest. I would say they are obsessively focused on elevating adult desires, adult sexual identity, adult feelings, adult longings. And, you know, I would actually say that in all of these conversations about marriage and family, and certainly in the world of reproductive technologies as well, adult desire serves as a god, you know, the North Star, the thing to which everything must bend and bow. And the problem with that is when sex and desire and adult feelings, especially related to sexual identity, become God, children are always the required sacrifice. And I think you see that primarily in abortion, but you see that echoed loudly in the IVF debate, right? Who cares if I have to discard or grade or donate to research a few surplus embryos? I got the baby that I wanted. Well, who cares if the child is going to grow up in a home that is intentionally fatherless or intentionally motherless. What I want is the most important thing, or this is what my identity requires is for me to have a child, a single father by choice because I'm gay and I don't want to, you know, partner with a woman. I mean, in all of these different areas, adult desire is serving as God and it requires that children be the sacrifice, that they lose their right to life or they lose their right to their mother or father. And that's simply not how a just society operates. A just society doesn't force the weak to sacrifice for the strong. But that is what's happening in the big fertility world right now. Mm, so true. And it's, um, it, you know, goes all the way back to old Babylon and sacrificing children to Molech. And, and you can see that we're doing the very same thing with actual child sacrifice with abortion, you know, intentional killings. But even when uh, children are born and they're they're commoditized um, in this manner, or um, even the people who are sacrificing their children to their own 
uh, desires to maybe have a um, you know a two person uh, two household income, and so they send their kids to um, you know a public institution that indoctrinates them, or they have them raised by um, you know a, a nanny or you know other all of these other choices that aren't in the best interests of children. And now it may be that you know you have a, a nanny come over and help, and and that's actually you're making that decision because it's helpful and it is in the best interests of children. But so often. All of these decisions are made because of the parents' desires rather than saying, what is the best choice for my child? And you're so right. Um, I actually had a friend um, from from law school. I, I knew her. She wasn't in my law school, but um, you know, knew her just from where I was living at the time. And um, she was turning 40 and, you know, had been divorced, wasn't, um, wasn't looking to get remarried. And she decided, um, she wanted kids and so used a sperm bank and IVF and intentionally had a child that would come into a fatherless home because she wanted to be a mom. And a lot of the people around her, Katie said, oh, that, you know, this is so brave. This is so great. You know, you want to be a mom. This is so pro-life. But um, but really what she's doing is negating God's design for the family. And she's intentionally bringing a child into the world that's fatherless. And, and, and that may, you know, sometimes that happens when, you know, parents, unfortunately, sometimes um, die tragically. There are um, broken homes or something went wrong. But the point of this is that we shouldn't be intentionally creating fatherless or motherless homes for children who have a right to a mother and a father. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, there are all kinds of child loss that takes place in this world due to tragedy. You mentioned death. Um, you know, a lot of single mothers are single mothers because they were the only parent that was willing to act like an adult. You know, so there are situations where you don't reach the ideal. Um, but the reality is that these days, the majority of children are losing a relationship with their mother or father, not due to tragedy, not because their father has gone to war or their mother died in childbirth. They're losing their father or mother because it's considered virtuous, progressive, necessary to advance your own ideals, your own identity, your own aims, right? And so, like, most kids these days are finding themselves in motherless or fatherless homes because the adults wanted it that way in some shape or form. And so that is a shift in terms of how children lose their parents. And we talk about this in our first book, Them Before Us, Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement, that these intention-based losses very often impact children much harder than other kinds of losses. For example, you know, there's a couple studies that show that children who lose their parent to death fare better than children who lose a parent to divorce because there is some intentionality on the part of the parents who went through the divorce where the child goes, you know, this must be my fault or they must not have wanted me. Whereas the child whose parents die goes, well, they would be here if they could. And so we are really messing with children's, not just their childhood, but you, if you mess with someone's childhood, you really impact their whole life. And, you know, we go through that in detail with a variety of different marriage and family issues um, through our work and in our book. You know, it's just never, um, it's never just to force a child to sacrifice for an adult so that they can live as they please. And yet that's exactly the road we're heading down, both technologically with all the different ways we can tinker with kids, but also culturally in the way that we talk about family. Like, you know, biology doesn't matter. Love makes a family. Or kids don't need moms and dads. They just need to be safe and loved. And then, of course, all of the legal decisions that are coming out that are legally reshaping the family into something that makes mothers and fathers optional um, in the life of the child. So we have a lot of work to do to educate people on 
how children come to be, what their rights are, and how they need to be protected. Mm. I'm speaking with Katie Faust, who's the founder of Them Before Us. And, you know, IVF is a very um, controversial topic um, generally, but even among um, Christians and conservatives, which is you know, the, the, the vast majority of our of our AFR uh, family here in our, our audience. And, um, you know, and, and IVF as a as a form of, of helping a mom and a dad, you know, a couple that um, has difficulty conceiving, um, even within that, uh, there are ethical issues. I think that that couples need to consider, um, like for example, the couples who um, there are leftover embryos that then are frozen for a certain amount of time, or simply discarded, or potentially um, you know adopted out. I mean, some of these things that even if a um, if IVF is used for a married couple that is trying to conceive based on infertility issues, that that still there are still ethical questions. And so, how do you um, counsel conservatives and um, and Christians to think through some of these issues, even if they think, well, I, you know, I'm not the um, the gay couple, for example, that's trying to to have a child because you know it's two men, and and we see why that's wrong. But um, we want to use the IVF in order to um, to try to help our own infertility issues. Well, for Christians, the one thing that you need to remember is in our worldview, in our rubric, the weak never sacrifice for the strong. There's simply nothing like that in Scripture. In Scripture, you always see those in power, those that are strong, those that are adults, sacrificing on behalf of the weak and needy. It is a mandate. So anything that you do that that forces any child to sacrifice for you goes against biblical mandates. Like the meta-narrative that we have, that we live by, is the strongest of all coming down to sacrifice for the weakest among us. Yet while we were still needy, Christ died for us. And we are supposed to go and do likewise. So it is very difficult to employ IVF in a way that does not require little lives to sacrifice for you. There is always going to be an encouragement to create many more embryos than you are going to be able to implant. And then it's standard practice to grade these children based on their fitness or their sex or their eye color or hair color. Um, Discard the ones that you don't want. Donate some of them to research. And ironically, you know, you destroy those little lives in service of improving fertility services so you can create more little lives. I mean, this is a commodification of children. Um, And I have heard of some people that can do this without violating any child's right to life or any child's right to their mother and father. I can count them on about, you know, the fingers on one hand, because the fertility industry itself is set against a pro-life practice when it comes to using IVF. They will counsel you away from only creating the number of embryos you want to immediately implant. They will counsel you away from grading and testing the embryos. Um, I mean, what you're saying is, I'm gonna implant whatever embryo I create fresh without freezing any, regardless of the fitness. So even if there is a, and I'm not going to even do some genetic screening for this. Well, that means that you might be pregnant with a very high risk um, embryo. And that's that's the pro-life way to do this. Most parents don't have the money to create only the number of embryos that they intend to immediately implant every time. It is so cost prohibitive. And most don't have the moral courage to fight their own doctors to do it in a way that respects children's right to life and right to their mother and father. And so if you can do this without violating any child's right to life or right to their mother and father, you might be able to squeak through in terms of ethics 
But even then, we have reams of data on how IVF children are at much higher risk of physical disabilities, mental disabilities, cognitive disabilities, because there does seem to be something that affects a child when they are created in a Petri dish versus in the loving embrace of their mother and father's sexual union. Hmm. And you know, it, it's so true that that doctors do encourage. Um, you know, so I, I've had friends who have gone through um, you know some of these infertility treatments, and they encourage um, creating you know ten or fifteen or twenty embryos because you never know how many will survive. And you and and if you think about that, you're creating, and then you have at that moment ten or fifteen or twenty kids. It's just that that's true. And, and then even if you successfully try to implant, let's say, you know, three or five, which doctors will advise, then if, if several implant, then they want to say, well, then we'll evacuate the, the ones that um, are the most um, at risk so that you only end up with the one child or maybe the two children that you want. And it ends up becoming a, a medically induced abortion. And so a lot of these decisions, as you said, I mean, it takes really, really strong moral courage ahead of time going into this to say, well, maybe I'll only um, create three embryos because at I'm willing to have three kids if that's ultimately um, what happens and hopefully it does um, because you don't want to go through this process thinking, well, it's likely that some of of my kids will tragically die. I mean, these are difficult questions. It's very hard. Um, It's difficult to speak about, but these are the types of moral questions that we need to confront as Christians, even in the advancement of medical technology that... Um, it tries to overcome things like infertility that I know are, are just so difficult um, for couples and for parents, regardless of your age, regardless of you know your um, how long you've been married. If if you're new, you've been married for a while. But we need to confront all of these questions with the biblical worldview and the truth. And this is why I so respect uh, Katie Faust. Her book is Them Before Us. That's also her ministry. Uh, she's the founder of Them Before Us. We'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Last year, because of you, Preborn's network of clinics saw over 58,000 babies saved. Thank you to all who made this possible. Let's celebrate these precious babies. When Charlotte found out she was pregnant, she was seven weeks along. In the back of her mind, she thought abortion was the best solution. But after hearing her baby's heartbeat and seeing her beautiful baby on an ultrasound, she chose life. Her heart is filled with gratitude for all of you who made this possible. Each of these babies are truly miraculous, and every day, Preborn celebrates 200 miracles. $28 a month can be the difference between the life and the death of a child. When a mother meets her baby on ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection that doubles the baby's chance at life. Let's join together and help mothers choose life. Just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby or visit preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. 
Welcome back. Well, you know, we're just being totally non-controversial this morning, you know, covering all of the really easy topics like, you know, Disney, IVF, all of that, because, you know, it's a far be it for me to ever be controversial. But uh, I know my next guest is uh, is laughing at that because he knows me to, to confront uh, controversy head on because we have to talk about truth. We have to talk about perspectives of uh, how we as conservatives will analyze policy issues. And uh, this next issue um, is a little bit uh, less <laughs> controversial, but um, this is Representative Ken Buck from my former home state of Colorado, has a resolution calling for Kamala Harris to invoke the 25th Amendment to remove Joe Biden. So um, this this resolution, uh, kind of you know, some of the, the uh, chatter on um, social media yesterday was was um, saying that this resolution was so that a simple majority of Congress could invoke the 25th Amendment itself, which, of course, is antithetical to what the 25th Amendment says, um, because it's only the the, um, the cabinet that can invoke that or any other such body as Congress shall by law designate, which, of course, they haven't. And so a simple uh, majority resolution of the House could not try to invoke the 25th Amendment on their own power. And believe me, if that were constitutional, then Nancy Pelosi would not have had to go to the trouble of impeaching Donald Trump twice. Um, So let's talk about this, uh, this resolution with um, our good friend Mark Lauder, who is the chief communications officer of the America First Policy Institute. So Mark, um, this seems to really, because there's not really any teeth in it, uh, be kind of a PR move because this resolution, the text of this uh, resolution calling on Vice President Kamala Harris to convene and mobilize the principal officers of the executive departments of the cabinet to activate Section 4 of the 25th Amendment to declare President Joseph R. Biden incapable of executing the duties of his office and to immediately exercise powers as acting president. Uh, I don't think that Cackling Camel is going to do this. No, I think there's absolutely zero chance that she would do that. I also think there's zero chance that a majority of the cabinet officials who are appointed by the president would take that unprecedented step. I mean, Section 4 has never been invoked uh, since it was uh, ratified uh, back in the, I believe, the early uh, mid-60s. And there's a reason for that. It should be reserved for extraordinary circumstances. Uh, It's not something that's ever been done. I don't see it being done. And I don't see Democrats wanting to do it because, I mean, let's be honest, Kamala Harris is worse than Joe Biden. (laughs) Yeah, and that's the that's almost their safety or indemnification clauses and their safety valve is that Kamala Harris is is actually almost worse than than Joe Biden. I think that's kind of a toss up here. Uh, But at the same time, um, the extraordinary circumstances of having someone like Biden, who is so obviously in cognitive decline, you now have the special counsel, uh, Robert Hur's report um, saying even, you know, years ago before he was elected, um, having trouble remembering details and, and basically saying, you know, he's a well-meaning but forgetful old man. I mean, this isn't somebody who you want to have as some on the nuclear button. No, and that's going to be a decision that the American people are going to have to decide for themselves. And it's going to be very challenging for the Biden campaign. I, I, in my experience in, in politics, one of the worst things a campaign can do is to be put into a position where you are trying to convince the American people of something that they don't already see and believe with their own eyes. 
And so no matter how many cabinet secretaries, no matter how many times KJP runs out there and says the president is, you know, mentally sharp and fit, well, we see something different with our own eyes. Every time he opens his mouth, every time he leaves the White House, we see something different. And so it's going to be very challenging for them. And I don't think, you know, going with Seth Meyers to an ice cream shop in New York is going to change that. Right. And and this is why, uh, Mark Lauder, a lot of uh, Republicans and conservatives and, you know, myself included, really don't think that the Democrats are going to end up with Joe Biden at the top of the ticket because, you know, I just can't fathom that in, in, in any kind of rational reality, he would be the candidate that they would choose to put up. But, um, you know, that that's assuming that the the majority of Democrats are rational, which, which, you know, really probably is not the case. And so, um, but you're right in terms of the 25th Amendment and Section 4 um, being for such extraordinary circumstances so that we don't get this kind of a pretext to just oust uh, the, the sitting president as easy as it was, for example, to oust uh, the Speaker of the House. Um, you know, we have these provisions in place. And even if people are saying, you know, we, we don't think that Biden is mentally competent and he's capable, we still have to go through the procedures and the protocols and the rule of law that is in the Constitution so that we do not make it easier to then manipulate the facts um, like Nancy Pelosi tried to with Trump. I mean, she tried to say that he that 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 his cabinet should have invoked the 25th Amendment because he was unfit. And notice, you know, she twisted that to say unfit instead of unable um, the language of the 25th Amendment. And, and and the and the Democrats will always twist and contort uh, the the circumstances if you give them an inch and say, well, in this circumstance, it's justified to use the 25th Amendment they're going to then try to use it against their political opposition. So we need to, as conservatives, always be very circumspect about um, does is this an instance that that does genuinely fall under the Constitution, just like impeachment power? Or is it something that later on down the line, Democrats are going to try to weaponize? Well, I think they'll definitely weaponize it. I mean, they've shown that they will do that with just about anything. Uh, and to your point, if you give them an inch, they will take a mile. So I think it sets a horrible precedent, much like the impeachments of Donald Trump. You see that some are now saying, oh, well, we should follow suit and impeach on, you know, on, on, on Joe Biden. And that's not what. I think we may have lost. But that's oh, actually a. You know, All right, uh, Adam, let's see if we can get a better connection with Mark Lauder. Mark, are you still there? Uh, Because you were cutting out there for just a second. So, all right, okay. Um, so, yeah, so you were saying, you know, that the uh, the political tool and, you know, we, we don't want to weaponize this. And, and the Democrats, of course, are trying to weaponize everything. And in um, meantime, uh, Ronna McDaniel is stepping down as the RNC chairwoman. And I think a lot of conservatives have been very frustrated with the RNC, with the majority of Republicans who aren't doing things like impeaching Joe Biden, uh, for example, and instead, um, you know, going after Secretary Mayorkas and, and some of this. Um, but she officially announced um, her resignation yesterday morning that she'll step down from her position on March 8th. So this comes just a few days after Super Tuesday. And um, uh, Donald Trump, who is the presumptive nominee at this point, has endorsed um, a, a, a the North Carolina GOP chairman, Michael Watley, and then also his current uh, campaign manager, uh, to to then run kind of the day-to-day operations. Um, just from an optics perspective, um, 
my thought on this, um, and especially in terms of having Laura Trump, um, his daughter-in-law co-chair, just from an optics perspective, wouldn't it be better to wait until after the convention to have these kinds of um, suggestions? Because otherwise it looks like his campaign is just attempting to take over the RNC instead of, I mean, you know, I don't think that Nikki Haley has a shot at all, but she is still in the race. And so just from an optics perspective, doesn't this kind of look like he's putting his nomination before the convention? Well, I think, you know, once we get past Super Tuesday and then Michigan uh, today and this weekend, if he doesn't already have enough votes to technically and be the presumptive nominee, he'll be right on the cusp of that. There's nothing right now that's going to change that outcome. So having somebody in place, and, and really not as much about the chair and, and co-chair, but really having Chris Lasavita there running the day-to-day. I mean, Chris is someone who knows about get out the vote, knows about ballot chase, knows about uh, absentee mail-in, and can really make sure that the RNC is organized to empower the state and county Republican parties to do what they need to do. We don't have a moment to waste in getting those things on the ground. You can't just quickly get these kinds of uh, programs and plans in place. So doing it nine months or eight months before the election rather than three months before the election is really critical. Uh, Also, it gives the RNC, and especially with Laura, uh, who is a prolific fundraiser, uh, that gives them additional time to start getting out there and getting the money in the door. Uh, there are a lot of donors out there, big donors, that have basically said, you know, we want to support the RNC. We want to support uh, the president in his reelection bid, but we don't want to give with Rana. And so sending that signal that uh, basically there's a new sheriff in town, I think, gives them a leg up on fundraising, which is going to be critical to building the machine that's going to get out the vote in those seven swing states. And Mark Lauder, I think you're absolutely right that, you know, unfortunately, um, campaigning and elections comes down to money. I mean, the only reason that Nikki Haley is still in is because somebody is, is footing her bills, even though uh, the Cock Network has now stripped funding for her campaign and she's kind of, you know, losing some of that support. She's able to stay in if she wants to, as long as the money is there. And um, that's an, an unfortunate expense. I mean, that would be a lot better invested, in my opinion, in some of the state and local races. Um, but you're absolutely right about Ronna McDaniel. And, you know, I've said it in just my opinion over the last several years, I don't think she should have even run uh, for re-election. She had promised uh, not to, and then she ended up uh, going out for a third term. But there were, are a lot of people that will not give to the RNC or through WinRed because Ronna McDaniel is at the top, and especially with a lot of those reports that talked about just the lavish, ridiculous spending from the RNC while they're not winning a lot of these elections. I mean, you know, if you look at the, the state and local elections especially and how um, the the very slim majority keeps getting slimmer in the House now with um, I just got an, an advisory message from Speaker Mike Johnson that he's going to have a swearing in ceremony for the replacement for George Santos, which unfortunately is a Democrat. So, I mean, a lot of people are frustrated uh, with the, the how the RNC has been run. So um, why didn't Ronna McDaniel step down sooner than if the whole idea is to get a lot of these things in place to to get out the vote and you know all of these programs that sound great that you're mentioning well you know i mean that's obviously you know i mean ask the members of congress who stay well past you know 
their their commitment to say I honor term limits or whatever. Once you get into these jobs, these offices, uh, you know, it, it, there's an incentive to, to stick around even longer. Uh, and so, you know, obviously I don't want to speculate in terms of why Rana decided to stay, but now that we've got a presumptive nominee, it's not unusual for the campaign and the national party on both sides to merge operations together to basically become that one united front. Uh, it's good to see that the president, who actually, remember, he basically handpicked Rana back in 2017 to be the RNC chair. Uh, so to have him make that decision, it's time to move on and, and get the folks in there who can really fully align with his campaign. Obviously, Chris Lasavita, I think that's the most important piece right there. Uh, because that's the day-to-day operations. Your chair, your co-chair, yeah, you see them on TV, but they're mostly there to raise money. Uh, mm-hmm. And so having Chris doing the ground game, being in charge of that day-to-day operation, I can think of probably no better person than Chris Lasavita to take that job. Yeah, and, and, and I, I fully agree with you in terms of, you know, when we get um, a nominee and seeing, you know, that the RNC should back uh, th- their nominee, um, and, and that looks like it's going to be Donald Trump. And so in just the last couple of minutes I have with you, Mark Lauder, um, what does a, a Chris LaCivita and the, the Trump campaign apparatus and the RNC need to do to convince, um, you know, some of the voters and some of the conservatives, I mean, you know, some of these never-Trumpers they're never going to convince, and they didn't back in 20. 2016. And, you know, they're just kind of the, you know, the lost cause. I mean, my view is you always need to um, vote in the best possible way. And, um, you know, I haven't yet um, endorsed anyone. I haven't yet um, determined, you know, how I'm going to exercise my vote. But at the end of the day, I'm going to vote for the best person um, who is is up on the ticket for office. Right. So what do they have to do to convince some of these voters that are skeptical of a third run of Donald Trump? Well, I think the biggest thing, and I think this is true for the entire electorate, is that results matter uh, and the policies matter. And, you know, as you know, Jenna, I was the director of strategic communication on the 20 campaign. And, and Joe Biden was difficult to run against because he was a hypothetical president. And then COVID allowed him to hide in the basement and basically just say, I'll work across the aisle. I won't mean tweet and I will end the pandemic. And that's all he had to do. Well, he's not hypothetical now. And people know the results that we got because of it. The sky-high price increases, the wide-open border, the wars in Europe and the Middle East, the crime on the rise and criminals not being protected. And so I think Donald Trump can make an easy comparison now to the results we have versus the results we had, especially prior to the pandemic. And people, by and large, uh, in large numbers, when you take the party and the names off of it, they want those policies again. So... I think when you point to what you're going to do, whether it's on the economy, whether it's on inflation, whether it's on gas prices, immigration in the border, crime, school choice, uh, respecting parents uh, and their decisions uh, in their own homes, then I think you have a chance to win that because you're doing a compare and contrast with what you currently have going on. And it's a mess. Yeah, really, really well said, Mark Lauder. And, you know, and Donald Trump is not a hypothetical president either. And, you know, if anyone is honest, they would say 
even if you know they didn't like him, they didn't vote for him, whatever, they were better off and America was better off and more secure under the Trump administration clearly than what we've had for the last four years. So that contrast of just reality needs to be front and center. Um, always appreciate your time. Mark Lauder is the Chief Communications Officer at the America First Policy Institute. And uh, you can always reach me and my team, Jenna, at AFR.net and on the Salem News Channel. I'll see you tomorrow morning. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio. I want to thank my sponsors, Preborn and Christian Healthcare Ministries. Preborn Network Clinics have rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and every day they save 200 babies' lives. But they can't do it without our help. Will you head over to preborn.com AFR and sponsor an ultrasound? Christian Healthcare Ministries is the longest serving health cost sharing ministry, helping Christians pay for and pray for one another's medical bills. Make the switch today and start saving. Visit chministries.org slash AFR. That's chministries.org slash AFR.